When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's easy to look back on history and think events unfold in a straight and neat line, as if somehow history was supposed to happen the way it did. But history is always more complicated than that. The success of new projects is never guaranteed. In fact, failure is much, much more common. The birth of the United States of America is no exception. Once the United States won its independence from Great Britain in the 18th century, the even harder work began. The Founding Fathers were tasked with creating a new nation from the ground up. And to do so, they wrote a document, the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution is not inevitable at all. My name is Jonathan Ganap, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Stanford University. And I have a slightly circuitous route ended up becoming a historian of the Constitution and American constitutionalism, particularly at its beginnings. The U.S. Constitution had roots in centuries-old English law and proposed a radical new system of government. The goal of the Constitution was to establish America's fundamental laws, set up the national government, and above all, guarantee individual liberties. But the best way to achieve those goals was highly contested. If you had told people that there would be a federal constitution that would look like this, as it comes to look in 1787. If you had told people in 1776, they would have thought you were out of your minds. You're gonna create a central government, a distant central government that is that powerful, that has, among other things, a judiciary that is that strong and independent, and a, a, an executive office, this figure of the president, that is so powerful and has so many of these prerogative powers that everyone agrees are antithetical to liberty. What are you doing? Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Jonathan Ganap to discuss the United States Constitution. So constitutionalism as a basic concept is about setting up some kind of supreme level of accountability for those in power. Some kind of higher law to which subjects or citizens are not just beholden, but also the people who rule them. What are the deeper origins of law that in theory applies to the rulers as well as the ruled? There are certainly religious origins that matter a great deal. Notions of divine law or then natural law existing independent of human creation, to which all are subject. But in terms of mechanizing it in the hands of human beings, as making it something more akin to a contract or a compact, Magna Carta agreed to um, by the King of England and his nobles in 1215 is often pointed to as one such origins. In the early 13th century, King John of England was overstepping his bounds. At the time, it was typical for kings to obey common laws and customs established by earlier monarchs. 
but King John believed he was above the law. He waged war in France and then imposed heavy taxes on his barons to pay for the war. If anyone refused to pay, King John threatened to punish them with jail, death, or seizure of property. The barons, understandably, united and revolted against the king. They captured London where the king lived and forced him to negotiate. The result of their negotiations was the Magna Carta. This document held both the king and the people accountable to the laws of the time. So Magna Carta became this key building block, if you will, this foundation upon which other um, creative intellectual acts were added to flesh out this thing called the English Constitution or the ancient Constitution, as it was often referred to, after um, the United Kingdom was formed, the British Constitution. The British Constitution is an uncodified constitution, meaning that it is not written in a single document. Instead, it is written in hundreds of acts of parliament, documented conventions, and court cases. The British Constitution holds both the monarch and the people accountable to the laws and customs of the United Kingdom. So whether something was legal or not depended in a large way on what was established custom. So if the king tried to do something and you could point out that kings had not been allowed to do this or hadn't done this for as long as anyone could remember is usually how they talked, then it was presumptively unconstitutional or vice versa if parliament on the people's behalf had done something. For many years after the Magna Carta was drafted, this model worked well. But eventually, tensions between the king and parliament began to rise. The 17th century is really, if we had to boil it down in England, a massive constitutional struggle between, on the one hand, the king's prerogative, the king's capacity to make law and, and enact law without anybody else's input, and on the other hand, legislative privilege, the idea that some kind of legislative body, in this case, the two houses of parliament, has the authority ultimately to determine what will be the law of the realm. You cannot make it without their voice. These two competing ideas of rulership led to the glorious revolution of 1688. In the end, parliament defeated the king and became the ruling power of England. The king would now be held accountable to parliament. Now, the British constitution applied not only to mainland England, but also to Britain's colonies around the world. In the early 17th century, Britain began colonizing the eastern coast of North America. By the early 18th century, 13 English colonies were established. Although they were governed under British law, the colonies were an ocean away from England. By the 18th century, many of the colonists were born in the colonies and had never even been to England. So American colonists begin saying, um, we love being British. We love being members of the British Empire. There's no freer country in the world. There's no freer institution in the world than the British Constitution. We want that same constitutional settlement to come to the colonies. But the thing is, they weren't satisfied with the way they were represented in British Parliament. The colonists were fairly independent already. The British Parliament represents the people of England, and the colonists wanted some form of representation for themselves. And... I may be biased, but I think they had a point. There's an enormous amount of discretion to get a working um, colony off the ground and to arrive at a set of um, a set of political arrangements, institutions, institutional and otherwise, that people are willing to accept. Um, so there's already a sense that 
of, of self-government and local rule that, you know, we in Pennsylvania, we in Massachusetts, we in Virginia have been doing this for a while. Um, you know, we've, you, you sort of sent us away and hoped we would figure it out. And, and, and now we want sort of formal recognition of, of, of our legislative bodies. We basically want the glorious revolution to come to the American colonies. Up until now, it had been mostly up to the colonies to figure out how to manage themselves, and they wanted their methods of governing to be formally recognized. But now that the colonies were relatively established, the British government decided to get more involved with the colonies. They set up new institutions, such as the Board of Trade, to keep a firmer grip on the colonies. So the royal governors who are dispatched to the colonies to act in the in the king's name or the British government's name are in the early 18th century, trying to exert more authority at this exact moment that colonists themselves are saying, wait a minute, this makes no sense. You're, you're trying to, you should be giving us the glorious revolution, not rolling it back. And the British government says, what are you talking about? You are subject to the king and parliament. You are subject to the glorious revolution, which means parliament and, and the king and the king's officials get to decide to a greater extent what is going on. So it's the beginning of this kind of awakening of political consciousness of what both sides are trying to do and an increased interest in that project. This began a long struggle between the colonies and Britain over who would actually govern. Is it going to be instructions from an ocean away executed by these governors, or is it going to be these local houses of assembly? You get kind of the first efforts to, to, to do constitutionalism on the ground in a real way. And it's impossible to understand the American Revolution that comes later and the separation from Britain and any of the constitutional solutions that follow that Americans devise without an understanding of this lived experience this long-lived experience of constitutionalism in action as being a concrete struggle in the colonies themselves over who gets to rule and on whose terms. This debate reached a boiling point in the 1760s. Britain had just come out of a big war with France over territory in North America. The British won the war and acquired large amounts of new land and large amounts of debt. To help pay their debts, the British heavily taxed the colonies the colonists felt that this was an intrusion on their rights. Why this is so important from a constitutional standpoint is because they have to explain exactly why. And it requires them to take all of this longstanding experience about what they think they have a right to and why they think they have it and to give it a new kind of clarity. Why exactly is this a violation of their rights? And what's important here is they situate them directly in the British constitutional tradition. They claim that that they have are entitled to the rights of freeborn Englishmen, the same rights that people died to secure in the, in the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. And they then have to explain in detail why, these, why this British legislation to tax them and to legislate for them and to do other things violates those rights. So the 1760s and 70s, among other things, is a great debate between the American colonists and British metropolitan officials over the nature of the British Constitution and over the rights protected under that. The key here being that the rights of freeborn Englishmen had long been premised on this idea that to be free and to not be a political slave meant that you were subject to authority and lawmaking that was effectively your own. The colonists felt that the English were too far away and too dissimilar to them to act in the colonists' interest. 
They wanted their own local form of representation in their own form of government. So it reached just sort of this, from an intellectual constitutional standpoint, that to square any of these arguments really requires breaking away from Britain. And it's not necessarily a rejection of the British constitution, but it is made in the name of it that the true principles of the British constitution, Americans argue, are this capacity for local self-rule and to have representative institutions um, that ensure you are not a political slave. The only way to ensure that, apparently, because the British are unwilling to um, think through other solutions, is to set up our own country, is to break away and declare, and declare independence. Uh, it did not take long for people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean to draw attention to the irony of white American colonists clamoring endlessly about the need to protect their liberty in the British Empire and to not be reduced to political slaves, as they said time and time again. Um, the, the fact that these same people held hundreds of thousands of others in bondage in the cruel institution of slavery. So slavery was a stark reality in American life at the time of independence and continued to be over the course of the 1770s and 1780s. So they declare independence. They fight a war. Uh, what, what's the next phase of the story uh, until we get to the writing of the Constitution? One of the most important phases in the story, often overlooked, is the writing of the first American constitutions. Everyone says constitutional history begins in 1787, not true in the slightest. You can't understand the project of American regimes unless you understand their working understanding by 1776 of what makes for a good constitutional government. So this is a practical problem, first and foremost. British rule has collapsed in the colonies. That is the direct consequence of the revolution. There are no longer governments um, in, in, you know, even in the lead up to the Declaration of Independence, but certainly thereafter, the whole premise is those governments are no longer legal here. So you need new ones. Um, and this requires putting into action the constitutional arguments that people have been making now for some time. Each and every state becomes embroiled in debate over what its own constitution should look like. And almost all of the constitutions are written right away in 1776 um, at the state level. And they are attempts to form governments that will, will sort of instantiate what Americans think they are fighting for. Because royal government has collapsed, they need to establish a new government. And it's very hard to do that from a coordination standpoint, except by specifying in writing what this new government will look like. The British Constitution could exist in customs because they had hundreds of years of history to establish those customs. But on some level, the colonists were starting from scratch. They didn't have their own long history to refer back to. But they did believe in fundamental laws. People in the 18th century tended to think that lots of legal protections, lots of law, lots of fundamental law existed. It was out there. It was like the, the principles of mathematics. It wasn't something people created. It was something you found and identified. And this is how they understood Magna Carta. Magna Carta didn't codify anything. It merely put down 
as a as a useful reminder things that were otherwise true. So Magna Carta was not a source of those rights. It was a reminder of those rights. The declarations of rights in the new state constitutions worked similarly. So they have these written constitutions, but they don't think of them in exclusive terms as though the constitution is the written thing and nothing outside of it is relevant. They were still taking into account these fundamental laws, even if they didn't write them into the constitution. They didn't think of liberty the way we tend to. The modern liberal understanding of liberty, and by liberal, I mean the lowercase l liberal sense, basically an idea of non-interference, liberty defined as non-interference. So you measure liberty by the amount of coercion that is or is not present. Government coercion is an intrusion on liberty. You try to balance the two out. People in the 18th century didn't see it that way. They didn't measure liberty in terms of non-interference, typically, especially in the English-speaking world. They tended to think of liberty as a state of being, about whether you were or were not subject to a power, a will other than your own. And this is why representation was essential. Because if the government was representative, then the government in a meaningful extent was you, and therefore the government could intrude upon people's affairs, it could regulate society and economy in all kinds of ways without in any way being coercive, because it was you doing that. An unrepresentative government couldn't do any of those things. In fact, an unrepresentative government, even if it did nothing, was tyrannical because at any point it could. The young United States was very interested in protecting the individual liberty of the people. They felt the best way to do this was to set up local institutions, state legislatures, and militias. They would all be run by local representatives. In 1777, they established the Articles of Confederation. This was an agreement among the nation's first 13 states, and it served as the nation's first constitution. Then the 1780s come along, and people begin rethinking whether or not local legislatures being given so much power will in fact be the recipe for protecting liberty. Um, and this is where you start to see the origins of the Constitution. Because to this point, um, at the federal level, things are mostly an afterthought. All creative constitutional conversation about questions of sovereignty, who is sovereign, who has authority, the institutional structures that ought to be built, that's all happening at the state level. At the national level, you have the Continental Congress, which is basically takes shape by accident to speak for the colonies well before the Declaration of Independence. It then decides on the Declaration of Independence and stays in power. It draws up the Articles of Confederation, the United States' first national constitution, to try to give itself the formal authority that is a practical matter it needs to prosecute the war effort. But it's, it's really all the action is at the state level because there's an understanding that the states is where most of the power is going to be. The national government is not going to have a ton of power. Um, and evidence of that is that there's going to be equal representation in the national government that the Articles of Confederation sets up, which is just you know, one body. There's no executive. There's no judicial branch. It's just this one legislative body, and it represents the states equally. Delaware and Virginia, massively different populations. They'll each have one vote. So it really, in many ways, is more like the European Union, you could argue, 
than it is like a, 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 a government of a sovereign nation. Um, and that's, you could argue, how a lot of people are thinking about it in the early 1780s. The states are where people are represented, and then they confederate and create this larger trans-union body <laughs> to help with large problems of union, like fighting the war and um, questions of foreign relations, negotiating with foreign governments, things like that. In the early 1780s, this looked like a pretty good way to run the nation. Each state acted like an independent country, but with a nationwide central government made up of a single legislature called the Congress of the Confederation. But this model was short-lived. So there, there are top-down and bottom-up reasons for constitutional reform. The top-down one, which is about the United States to, to survive as a nation in the international community of states must have the powers of a genuine nation. This is what a lot of nationalists like Alexander Hamilton and others are after from an early date. This Congress we've set up under the Articles of Confederation, this cannot do the trick. This is not going to be able to establish the United States as a legitimate sovereign power on the national scene, both to repel invasions from potential foreign adversaries, but also to make meaningful connections with foreign nations through treaties and commerce. Um, and, and this is where the bottom-up story becomes relevant. Part of the reason being that the national government can't has no coercive authority over the states. They can ask nicely for them to give them tax funds or for them to honor treaty provisions. But how is the United States supposed to make treaties with foreign powers, do the things that legitimate sovereign nations do if the states just ignore the treaties they make? This form of government was problematic among the states as well. The Revolutionary War was extremely expensive for the United States. The country was in massive debt and the economy was plummeting. The states were having trouble addressing these issues on their own because each state had a lot of power. Everyone could call the shots and the country was at a stalemate with itself. Hmm, sounds kind of familiar. In an effort to save the new country, American statesman James Madison began to look at these problems through a historical lens. What this leads James Madison to see is um, he's particularly worried by the extent to which state governments cave to the popular pressures of the day, whether that's debtor's relief or something else. And he starts to recognize that throughout most of history, the problem has been that the people don't have power and are tyrannized by kings, nobles, whoever it is. The problem of Republican government is that Republican government is premised on majority rule. But what prevents majorities from tyrannizing minorities? If a republic is three people, two are debtors and one is a creditor, you, I mean, majority rule is going to get you a predictable outcome every time. This is the thought. So what if you extend the sphere, take in a whole variety of other interests? Suddenly now, no one interest can easily form a majority in a much larger republic with less representation. So James Madison is thinking if we have larger electoral districts, people like me, James Madison, are more likely to be elected than the demagogues. And then when we get to Congress, we are going to you know, because they're going to be a smaller number of us committed to the public good, mindful of the general interest, we're going to deliberate and try to reach conclusions that work for everybody. It's not going to be perfect. 
it's but it's it's going to be better than these state governments, which are just, you know, vipers nests, uh, you know, seedbeds of of naked constituent might makes right political interest. What's the process look like uh, until there's a document that can be, you know, debated and ratified? Throughout the 1780s, there's there's increased movement for reform, but not dramatic, comprehensive reform, the form the constitutional convention ultimately takes. It's, it's to amend the Articles of Confederation, to add new powers to the government. But by seven, the fall of 1786, the final attempt to really do that has seemingly completely failed. In order for an amendment to be added to the Articles of Confederation, every state had to agree. But the problem was that they didn't all agree. So Congress called for a general convention in Philadelphia in the spring of 1787 to figure out what could be done and how to revise the articles. 70 state delegates were invited to the convention. 15 of them turned down the invitation because they had gone to these conventions before and they didn't really see any progress. They thought this convention would be more of the same. But lots of delegates did attend and they all had similar ideas. The people who end up in Philadelphia are to a significant disproportionate degree nationalist, national-minded people who want significant far-reaching reform. So May of 1787, the delegates begin to descend. There are 55 of them from 12 states. Rhode Island does not send delegates. Uh, Rhode Island's kind of the problem child of the, of, of the 18th century, if you will. Um, so the other delegates show up. And some of the delegates think it is just going to be, let's talk about revising the Articles of Confederation. That's, in, that's more or less what Congress established as the mandate. Um, but the nationalists, in the meantime, have settled on a new plan um, led by the Virginia and Pennsylvania delegations, which says, rather than revise the articles, let's just have a new system of government. In May of 1787, James Madison proposed the Virginia Plan. This plan suggested that each state be represented based on population and that the federal government should have three branches. It was a bold plan, but it set the terms of debate. There are lots of ways you can understand the word revise. We were sent here to revise the articles. <laughs> Deleting it and writing something new is, is a very, um, you know, a very liberal understanding of, of revise. Uh, but... You know, it's a classic example of agenda setting and how, it, you know, if you want to win an argument, you set the terms of debate, you set the agenda. By seizing, by unexpectedly framing the conversation in these terms about not whether they should be revising the articles, but whether they have authority to be doing what the Virginia plan is saying, it's able to create a new kind of conversation where ultimately the delegates are willing to give in the majority of them and say, yeah, we, we you know, the, the problems of union are so extreme that we should be having this debate over the Virginia plan. It's able to set the terms of debate very effectively. The remainder of the convention in many ways is about how the Virginia plan, which is very nationalist, very dramatic, will give the national government extraordinary amounts of energy, is compromised down or whittled down into the final document. So the Constitutional Convention, the first day they have quorum is May 25th, 1787. They end up signing the document that they agree to on September 17th, 1787. So it's four months, three and a half months of 
prolonged debate, which really is over the, the terms of debate that the Virginia plan sets. James Madison was a key figure, not only in helping to establish the Constitution, but also in documenting the process. The reason we know anything about the debates at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia is because of James Madison. He took notes on the debates. A few other delegates took notes, but they're nowhere near as detailed, and they only cover days here and there. He has given us the record. It's the most scrutinized primary source in American history. It's the only reason we know anything. The official um, convention journal merely took down proposed motions, votes, things of that nature. In terms of what was actually debated, it's Madison's notes. So we can't help but see the making of the Constitution through Madison's eyes. This has led from the 1820s on Madison to be referred to as the father of the Constitution. But if we then draw from that that he was the primary author of the Constitution or most responsible for what got in, that would be a big mistake. Um, ultimately, the Constitution was the product of, of the whole delegation. It was a perfect example of group writing. Um, not only were there so many issues going on at once that nobody could really keep on top of all of them, but what the ultimate result was, was a series of compromises that everyone could live with that was the unique byproduct of a group. It was, it was, a, it was, an, it was an act of democratic writing. Um, it was not an act of individual writing. As the debates wrapped up, the delegates split into subcommittees, a few of which had particularly influential roles in writing the document itself. The first was the Committee of Detail, which was tasked with compiling the results of the debates into a first draft of the Constitution. If you have a chance to write this first draft, you are not merely writing up what people have agreed to. The act of putting it together is an extraordinary creative act that involves an enormous amount of discretion. So even if this committee in theory doesn't have discretion, as a practical matter, it must exercise it. And they make a whole bunch of choices that are monumentally important. And the debate for the rest of the convention is about what will stay in or be changed in the Committee of Detail draft. Another committee is the Committee on so-called Postponed Parts towards the end of August, the things they haven't been able to figure out, like, among other things, how will we actually elect the President of the United States? This committee hammers out solutions to a lot of problems that have bogged down the convention over three months. And then lastly is the Committee of Style and Arrangement, or Committee of Style, which drafts the final draft of the Constitution. And it's, again, like the Committee of Detail, a five-person committee, but it's basically a committee of one. Governor Morris, um, this wonderful character who is unforgettable and yet has been forgotten, um, who, like James Wilson, is a fervent nationalist from the Mid-Atlantic. And he basically is the committee of style. Um, he's given authority to kind of write the final draft. And he makes a bunch of small, subtle changes that are pretty profound. Um, among other things, he dramatically changes the preamble to the Constitution. It used to be, or up to that point, was um, we the people of the United States and lays out all the individual states. And he changes it to just we the people of the United States. He adds a series of objects um, that we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, um, so on and so forth. You know, he, 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 he makes all these changes that seem, might seem cosmetic, but are, are pretty substantive. Um, so those drafting committees 
play a real outsized role. And the people who dominate them, like James Wilson and Governor Morris, uh, deserve as much consideration as James Madison, if not more. So if, if we're really trying to figure out who's playing the biggest role, um, there's still a lot to be debated there. It gets ratified. What's its life afterwards? And I, I'd be curious to hear, like, what is the immediate kind of reaction to this document in the U.S.? Um, its general success at establishing the new uh, country? You know, the Constitution goes public, as I mentioned, in the fall of 1787. It precipitates this intense nine-month period of ratification. Just a big continental-wide debate over this constitution and whether it is or is not consistent with the ideals of the American Revolution, ratified by a very slim margin. This is a political fight that the Federalists, those who defend the constitution, win over the anti-Federalists. So after that, it's not this moment that we might think of now. Well, everyone can at least agree that the constitution is legitimate or deserves our respect. They've just come out of this bitter fight in which Nearly half the country was opposed to the Constitution. So you've got these questions of endurance and legitimacy, which are really open ones. Will the American people respect and venerate the Constitution that has just been ratified? Will they give it and its new government the support that is needed? The whole reason this government has been brought into being is because it was a time of great crisis in most people's eyes. So those problems haven't gone away. Those now need to be addressed. And then in addition to that, you've got all these great uncertainties about what the Constitution itself even is. Um, is it going to be like the Articles of Confederation or is it going to be radically different? Is it going to be like the state constitutions? So there's sort of big questions about exactly how people should begin to implement and interpret this constitution. Also central questions that don't have easy answers. Once the constitution was ratified, the new government had to be established. James Madison earned a seat in the House of Representatives and helped write the laws that set up the departments of Treasury, War, Foreign Affairs, and the State Department. But as they're establishing this new government, they find that there is a lot that the Constitution doesn't provide instruction for. And it forces them to think through, how do we handle the millions of things that the Constitution is silent on, or seems to be silent on? Um, and it requires us to navigate what this document sets in motion in a very real way. Few things were more essential to the compromises that ultimately shaped the Constitution than the institution of slavery. The, the, the stark political reality that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had to confront was, on the one hand, there were profoundly different interests, uh, depending upon whether you were from a large state or a small state. This particularly mattered when it came to representation, the uh, concessions they were able to extract, which is central to the question of representation, is that uh, uh, each state will be able to count towards the total denominator that will go into their representation for the House of Representatives. Um, they will be able to count each enslaved person as three-fifths of a person. So Virginia, it won't just be a, represent, a representation of the free population, but the free population plus three-fifths of the slave population. So the slaveholding states will have more representation in Congress um, 
uh, based on the calculation of their enslaved population. This is only one of many ways in which slavery is implicitly recognized in the Constitution, and it it, it, is, it, it provokes a debate almost immediately that has never gone away about whether or not the original Constitution as written is inherently pro-slavery or anti-slavery. So the 1790s and beyond is marked by these moments of Americans having to figure out how to work their Constitution, how to make it work, um, how to figure out in a very real way, but the act of applying it and interpreting it is also the act of figuring out what you're even trying to do in interpreting it, right? It's both a debate over interpretation and a debate over the rules of interpretation at the same time. And what's interesting is that it divides American anti-slavery activists and thinkers. Some, like William Lloyd Garrison, who becomes a leading abolitionist in the antebellum United States, refers to the Constitution as um, a covenant with death, uh, that it's so irredeemably pro-slavery that the only solution is to throw it out and replace it with a new one. So he burns the Constitution in protest. Other anti-slavery activists, though, argue quite the opposite. They claim if you look carefully at the Constitution itself and understand the history that's, that went along with its construction, the framers actually intentionally put slavery on the path to extinction. They went out of their way uh, not to give it more recognition than they needed to um, and to open, open the way to its destruction. Uh, this is what Abraham Lincoln will come to argue uh, when he assumes the presidency. Frederick Douglass, the um, former former slave who, up, upon earning, um, who up, upon escaping to his freedom, ends up becoming you know, one of the the most the most uh, on point commentators in American public life throughout the 19th century. Um, he vacillates between both positions, um, pointing to all the ways in which uh, the American constitutional system and the American experiment itself is tainted by slavery and racism, while also emphatically arguing at many turns that the Constitution is actually facially anti-slavery and pro-slavery advocates should not take comfort from it. These debates are still alive and well in American culture. There's something peculiar about American constitutionalism and how it animates American life. There's any number of explanations why, but Americans have a, a, a real interest in thinking about not just the Constitution outside of time and space, if you will, but the Constitution as a thing that a group of people in the 18th century laid down that needs to be respected as such. So the, the modern debate over constitutional interpretation that's been raging for some time has been between living constitutionalists who think that the Constitution is a living thing that changes as society changes, that adapts with society, and constitutional originalists who think that the Constitution should be interpreted in accordance with its original meaning, the meaning it had when it was first laid down. So Americans spend a lot of time kind of arguing over whether we're beholden to what the founders, the American founding fathers, if you will, laid down and a lot of other countries, people from other countries find this strange that America's sort of fixation with its past, veneration for its past, that it would be so caught up in these questions that something like constitutional originalism, um, now depending upon how you count, a majority of Supreme Court justices are originalists of one kind or another. 
A huge percentage of judges on the federal judiciary are originalists. Originalism is something that has real popular purchase. Um, it has, it is, it is defended in, in many circles, um, disproportionately politically conservative, but also a variety of liberal circles. It's, it's an orientation toward the Constitution that calls for sort of returning us to that original moment. Um, and I think a lot of this is caught up in the fact the United States is a uniquely creedal nation. Unlike other nations, it doesn't have a lot to fall back on that binds it as a nation other than a series of creeds at a, at a, at a moment of creation. Um, so we have documents, we have people, we have a, a sort of tradition of a civil religion built around a different kinds of canonical texts and patron saints, uh, and, and people make pilgrimages to go pay homage to them, um, without anything else to really fall back on. Like Germany has the idea of the German people that stretches way back in time. I mean, the Americans are really a people made by documents, right? What makes the American people such a diverse group of people uh, that had previously been English? <laughs> what makes them Americans? Um, they, they are sort of announced as such um, in, among other places, the first words of the Constitution, we the people of the United States. It's both a recognition of their existence and something that makes them exist, that creates them. By learning about where the Constitution comes from, we can more clearly see its original purpose and its flaws. The Constitution provided a document that would help Americans live together. But it also offered a semi-religious origin story, based not in blood and soil or monarchy, but reason and rights. But like all religious stories, it continually invites new questions and interpretations. We are forced on a regular basis to ask ourselves, Basically, the question of all um, that, that all sort of fundamentalist religions at one way or another will ask. A lot of time has passed. What is the, what is the answer? Um, that was then and this is now and we must go forward or we have to get back in touch with our roots. We have to return to the beginning and restore things as they were. And if it's going to be some combination, um, how does that work? How do you keep the Constitution going forward in light of the fact we live in a society that obviously is unimaginable by the standards of, of the day in which it was written. That relationship, past and present, how they should be related to each other, how you, how you maintain one while promoting the other, that's kind of, I think, what the American Constitution ultimately is and the influence it's had on the world, bringing that problem as much as any other text might have to the fore. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.